Well, let me invite you to turn in your Bibles uh, this morning to John chapter 3. John 3, we're doing a series through the book of John, and as we continue in our series through this book, we come this morning to John chapter 3, verse 17, and my goal today is to cover uh, verses 17 through 21. And the title of the message is Jesus and the Judgment of God. Jesus and the Judgment of God. Or you could entitle this The Son of God and the Judgment of God. Either way will work just fine. Chris Martin is a name that might be familiar to uh, some of you. Uh, He is the lead singer of the band Coldplay. Uh, a British band which has sold more than 100 million albums uh, worldwide. Uh, Chris Martin, you may not know, was actually raised in a Christian home where he was taught many Christian doctrines, among which is the Bible's teaching on the topic of the judgment of God. But at the age of 16, Chris Martin began to struggle with this teaching from the Bible on uh, the doctrine of God's judgment, and at the age of 22, bothered by that doctrine, he had given up on religion altogether. He was asked uh, several years ago if he believed in a heaven and a hell, and he answered with these words, quote, I definitely don't believe there is a hell. That's why I gave up on religion. Unquote. What's interesting, though, is that even though Chris Martin has let go of the doctrine of God's judgment, the doctrine of God's judgment has not let go of him. In the song Viva La Vida that came out, that he wrote in 2008, Chris Martin, uh, there's, there's a line in that song that says this, for some reason I can't explain I know St. Peter won't call my name. He was asked after that song came out, uh, he was being interviewed by Q Magazine, and he was asked, what is that line about? And he said, I quote to you, it's about finding out that you're not on the list. It's always fascinated me that idea of finishing your life and then being analyzed on it. That's the most frightening thing you could possibly say to someone. Eternal damnation. I know about this stuff because I studied it. It's still mildly terrifying to me. And this is serious. Unquote. Well, there's a lot to disagree with Chris Martin on, but we can agree with him about a few things here. Number one, there is nothing more frightening than eternal damnation. Secondly, this topic is very serious. And third, you ought to study up on this subject so that you can know what you need to know on this very important topic of the judgment of God. Two weeks ago, uh, we studied John 3.16, where Jesus says, look at the text, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that whoever believes in him might not perish, but have eternal life. As we pointed out two Sundays ago, John 3.16 is a very positive verse spoken by Jesus, but it does bring up the topic of perishing. And it points out that there are two fates that are possible for people to experience. Number one, the fate of perishing, and number two, the fate of having eternal life. So the questions that we are left with after hearing what Jesus says in John 3.16 are these, which of these two fates will befall me? And number two, 
How does God giving his son to come into the world and be lifted up in death end up clarifying who will receive which fate? These are issues that are on Jesus' mind in verses 17 through 21. And we know that he's thinking about this from his choice of words. In verse 17, he uses the word judge. In verse 18, he uses the word judged twice. And in verse 19, he says, this is the judgment. Verses 17 through 21 are all about judgment. And they're coming from the lips of Jesus to us. So even if the topic of the judgment of God is not your favorite topic, I hope that you will take this matter seriously and sit at Jesus' feet and learn all that you can this morning while you have the opportunity to do so. After all, Jesus is the Son of God who came from heaven, and he deserves your attention on this topic. In this passage, Jesus gives us what amounts to five truths about the judgment of God, and we're going to see that all five of these truths end up involving Jesus, the Son of God, in some way. So that's how we're going to break down our study of this text, five truths about the Son of God and the judgment of God and how those two things intersect. Number one, truth number one, fundamentally, God did not send his son to judge the world, but to save it. Fundamentally, God did not send his son to judge the world, but to save it. Observe what Jesus says in verse 17. He says, for God did not send the son into the world to judge the world, but that the world should be saved through him. In saying this, Jesus is not suggesting that God does not intend to judge the world, nor is he denying that his coming has nothing to do or anything to do with God's judgment. His point is that fundamentally, God's primary intention in sending his son, Jesus Christ, into the world and to save people all over the world, that's his purpose in sending Christ to earth. And this is actually, if you look at the text, it's really good news for us as Gentiles. You know, many of the Jews prior to the coming of Jesus, they look forward to the coming of the Messiah because they expected that when he came, he's going to judge the world and save Israel. He'll judge the Gentiles and he'll save Israel. But Christ is telling Nicodemus that God's intention in sending his son into the world is to save people all over the world, people of every tribe and tongue and nation. This word, uh, the word save that you see in your text speaks of being rescued or delivered. The salvation that Jesus is speaking of here is salvation from the perishing that he spoke about in John 3.16. Jesus is saying that God sent his son into the world to save souls from a perishing that would otherwise be their experience were it not for Christ. And here in verse 17, Jesus says that this salvation that God wants to accomplish in the world will be through him. In other words, through Christ. God has no intention of saving anyone from perishing through any other means than through him, through Jesus. Everyone who will one day stand in heaven as a saved person being saved by God will testify and say that they were saved through Jesus and through him alone. And Jesus is saying here that fundamentally, this is God's primary intention in sending his son into the world so that perishing people the world over 
might end up being saved from their perishing through Christ. Now, as good of news as what Jesus says here is, it does deliver a mighty blow to our pride, right? His words imply that we need saving. His words imply that we are unable to save ourselves. We needed someone to come and save us. His words imply that apart from him, we are lost forever. These implications are profoundly offensive to human pride. But the humble of heart are willing to receive these words and embrace them. As Jesus says, For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world should be saved through him. Now what Jesus has just said in verse 17 is absolutely true, but his statement could be misleading if it's not properly qualified, and he's going to provide that qualification. One might think that since God did not send Jesus to judge the world, then it must be that his coming has nothing to do with God's judgment at all. This would be a wrong conclusion because while it is true that God did not primarily send Jesus into the world to judge the world, his coming actually has a lot to do with the judgment of God. Think of the analogy of our sun in the sky. The purpose of the sun shining is not to cast shadows, right? But shadows are inevitably cast as a result of the sun. And the same is true of Christ coming into the world. Christ did not come in his first coming primarily to judge the world, but his coming does end up revealing the division of the human race into two categories of people based on their different responses to him. And those responses both determine and reveal what God's judgment is regarding them. And this brings us to the second truth that Jesus teaches us about God's Son, Jesus, and the judgment of God. Number two, the person who believes in the Son, that's Jesus, is freed from God's judgment. The person who believes in the Son is freed from God's judgment. Observe what Jesus says in verse 18. He says, he who believes in him, in other words, he who believes in the Son whom God sent, is not judged. I should point out to you that the tense of the verb judged here is present tense. So Jesus is not merely saying that the believer in him will not be judged in a future day, but he's also saying that such a person is free from God's judgment even right now on earth. And this freedom from God's condemnation will continue through life and then through the judgment when they stand before God and then on through all of eternity. If you have been born again and you have believed in the Lord Jesus, you will not be condemned by God. When you stand before God at the end of your life, there will be no guilty verdict for you. You will be declared not guilty of your sins. And there will be no sentence of eternal judgment in the lake of fire. Yes, you may have committed many sins throughout your life, as I have done. But if you believe in Jesus, you will stand uncondemned before God at the judgment. And even right now, in this present moment, God looks upon you as uncondemned, and he relates to you accordingly. Isn't that good news? We can take great comfort in the fact that according to this verse, the only thing required for such deliverance from this judgment is belief in Jesus. Look at the text. 
I'm not stretching anything here. Jesus does not say here, he who does good deeds will not be judged. He doesn't say he whose good works outweigh his bad will not be judged. He doesn't say he who cleans up his act will not be judged. Or he who performs better than 50% of the rest of the world's population will not be judged. Jesus simply says that those who believe in him will not be judged. This is why Jesus came into the world. This is why Jesus was lifted up in death upon a cross so that through him, people would look away from themselves to him and upon believing in him, be delivered from the judgment or the condemnation of God. Well, you may hear that and say, what about those who do not believe in Jesus? Well, Jesus addresses that next, which brings us to the third truth in this passage about God's Son, Jesus, and the judgment of God. Number three, truth number three, the person who does not believe in the Son is judged already. Observe what Jesus says in verse 18. He says, he who does not believe, in other words, he who does not believe in the Son, has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. From what Jesus says here, you can see that a, a part of the reason why Jesus is saying that God did not send his Son into the world to judge the world, the reason he's talking that way is because the world is already under God's judgment, even before Jesus arrived. Those who believe in him are saved from that judgment. Those who refuse to believe in him remain under the judgment that they were already under before he came. Only now, Jesus' language here suggests that an extra layer will be added to their judgment, the judgment of those who reject him, because now they will be judged for refusing to believe in the name of Jesus, which is the greatest sin of all. Matthew Henry, the commentator, says, and I quote, unbelief in Jesus may truly be called the great damning sin because it leaves us under the guilt of all our other sins. Unbelief in Jesus, he says, is a sin against the remedy. So how you respond to Jesus is the most important thing about you. Your decision to believe in him or to disbelieve in Jesus is the most important decision that you will ever make in your life if you believe in him, that will be the best choice that you ever made. If you refuse to believe in him, that will be the greatest sin that you have ever committed. Notice the language that Jesus uses here in verse 18. He who does not believe has been judged already. Why? Because he's not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. This is why the unbeliever in Christ is in a state of being judged. Because of all things, he's not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Such a person's unbelief is so awful. His unbelief in Jesus is so awful because of the identity of the one that he is refusing to believe in. Do you feel that in this verse? Jesus is the only begotten Son of God, the unique, one-of-a-kind Son of God, the one who was with God, the one who was God from the very beginning, the one who came from heaven to earth and who is full of grace and truth. And for a person to look upon this one who is the only begotten Son of God, to look upon him, and decide that he is not worthy 
of their trust, that is no small sin. And if you want to know the measure of the evil of rejecting Christ, you measure the evil of it by the greatness and the beauty and the perfection of the one who's being rejected and disbelieved in. For any person to look at Christ and say, yeah, he's not worth my trust. I don't trust him to be my savior. That person in making that decision is committing a sin that is infinitely as bad as Christ is infinitely good. Also, the evil of unbelief in Jesus is measured against the standard of the greatness of the Father's trust in Jesus. God the Father has put his full confidence in Jesus to be the one who bridges the gap between God and man. God entrusted this task to his only begotten Son, and he entrusted this task to nobody else. God did not trust Buddha with this task or Muhammad or Confucius with this task. He didn't even trust you and me with this task. Only Jesus did the Father trust with this task. And when Christ came into the world, the Father affirmed him and voiced his approval at every turn, letting the world know that this is the one, this is the one I trust to bridge the gap between myself and mankind. At Christ's baptism, the Father blurted out from heaven, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. At Christ's transfiguration, the Father again spoke from heaven and said, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him, the Father says. Every miracle that Christ performed was the Father testifying and showing his approval in his son. And then the ultimate approval was when the father raised his son from the dead, thereby showing the world that he completely approved of all that Jesus had done to accomplish salvation for all who would believe in him. It's obvious when you read through the Gospel of John, for example, that the father trusted Christ completely with this most important task of salvation and that Jesus was ultimately worthy of such trust, which means that if you look at Jesus and you say, yeah, I don't trust him, your disbelief is not only an insult to Jesus, but it's an insult to the Father who placed his full confidence in his son. And you will be judged for that. And I would add that your refusal to trust Jesus, to trust in him, reveals more about you than it does about Jesus. It reveals a deficiency in you more than it reveals a deficiency in Jesus. In his commentary on this passage, F.F. Bruce talks about a pop star who once criticized the Mona Lisa painting and described it as a load of rubbish. Bruce then points out that in dismissing the Mona Lisa in this way, the man, and I quote, did not tell us anything about the Mona Lisa, but he did tell us much about himself. Bruce goes on to say, what is true in the aesthetic realm is equally true in the spiritual realm. The man who depreciates Christ or thinks Christ unworthy of his allegiance passes judgment on himself, not on Christ. The commentator William Ramsey tells about a visitor who was being shown around an art gallery by one of the tour guides, 
And Ramsey says that in that gallery were certain works of art beyond all price, possessions of eternal beauty and unquestioned genius. And at the end of the tour, the visitor said, well, I don't think much of your old pictures. And the tour guide responded by saying, and I quote, oh, sir, I would remind you that these pictures are not on trial, but those who look at them are. His point was to say that this man was the one who was on trial, and his response to the beautiful works of art revealed more about himself than it did the paintings. So if you're not sure what you think about Jesus, and you're reading the Bible and investigating the claims of Christ, that's wonderful. You should realize as you engage in that process that you are the one who's on trial, not Jesus. And your response to Jesus will reveal more about you than it does about him. And if you read the gospel accounts and you see who Christ is, you listen to his teaching, you see all the deeds that he performed, the deeds of love that he performed, and you see what he did at the cross to bring atonement to sinners, and you see how he was raised from the tomb on the third day after his death and then ascended to the right hand of heaven, and you look at all of that and end up concluding that such a one is not worthy of your faith, you thereby reveal nothing about Jesus, but reveal only your own blindness and your poverty of soul. You reveal yourself as a person who's already under the judgment of God. This is how Jesus views your rejection of him. This is the one you will stand before one day. To help us understand this a little further, in verses 19 through 21, Jesus elaborates on how it is that people reveal themselves and the truth about themselves by their response to Jesus. He explains the mechanics of this phenomenon of judgment, which brings us to a fourth truth about God's Son, Jesus, and the judgment of God. Number four, those who reject the light of the Son, S-O-N, those who reject the light of the Son, the Son of God, reveal the judgment that they are under. Observe what Jesus says in verse 19. He says, and this is the judgment And when Christ says this is the judgment, he's speaking partly of the process which reveals God's verdict on people's lives. Essentially, he's saying, let me explain how the process of this judgment works and how it is that men reveal the verdict of God on their life by how they respond to God's Son. For those who reject the Son, Jesus says... Look again at verse 19, and this is the judgment that the light has come into the world and men love the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. If you reject Jesus and you refuse to believe in Jesus, Jesus' words here in verse 19 show you how God views your rejection of him. You may think that you're rejecting Jesus for other reasons. You may think that your rejection of Jesus should be explained differently. But this is Jesus, who was God from the very beginning, who came from heaven to earth, the only begotten Son of God, who is speaking here, and he's telling you how he views your refusal to believe in him. If a person rejects Christ, here's the inscription that will be hung over their head for all of eternity. It goes like this. The light came into the world 
And this person loved the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. And guys, there's no arguing with this inscription that will be over the head of all who reject Jesus Christ. Notice how Jesus says the light has come into the world. Jesus is telling us that he came into the world as a light that shines. And as a shining light, he doesn't just make himself visible, but he also makes everyone he shines upon visible for the sinners that they are. When Christ drew near to us in his incarnation, his radiance lit up the world and enabled us to see ourselves for what we really are. Yet Jesus speaks about the fact that, look at the text, men loved darkness rather than light. According to this language, if you reject Jesus, it's because you're a lover of darkness rather than the light. Your problem is not a lack of evidence. Your problem is that you love the darkness. And Jesus says that the reason men love the darkness is because their deeds were evil. In other words, their favored deeds, which they wanted to keep on doing, were evil. Jesus presses even further in verse 20, saying, For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. People reject Jesus not simply because of what they see in him, but because of what he exposes about them as he shines his light upon them. They reject Jesus because of the truth about them that he brings to light. They would rather live in darkened conditions where their true flaws are hidden because they can't stand to see their flaws as they really are. They don't like Jesus because they don't like the way they look under his light. Imagine you have a room in your house that serves as the place where you fix yourself up before you go out into the world. And imagine that that room has really bright lights uh, perhaps even unforgiving lights. You see yourself very clearly with those lights on. But imagine one day you're standing in that room and you're looking in the mirror with those bright lights shining upon you and you notice some major blemishes on your face. And the sight of those blemishes distress you. Imagine that rather than doing something about those blemishes, you decide to solve the problem by turning off the lights completely so that the room is totally dark. <laughs> You've done that. And then you look in the mirror in that completely darkened room and you say, this is great. I've solved my problem. All my blemishes are gone. They're invisible. With the lights out, you can now live in the illusion that you are a blemish-free person. And if anyone comes along and says, hey, you got a blemish, you can accuse them of being a hater. You can even work to get laws passed that prohibit people from ever telling you that you have a blemish on your face. Even more, anywhere you go, you can always insist that the lights be turned off. And you can insist that everyone should be okay with that. Unfortunately, this is the way many people in our culture today operate. And by the way, when Jesus speaks of the evildoer not wanting his deeds to be exposed here, he's not simply speaking of evil deeds that the evildoer doesn't want anyone to know that he's done. 
Some people are very public with their sins. But even those who are public with their sinful deeds work very hard to conceal the wicked nature of their evil deeds. They work hard to hide the sinfulness of their sins. Even those who publicly march in a gay pride parade are hiding behind the word pride. They're hiding behind all the bright colors of their rainbow flag. And why are they hiding? Because they don't want the evilness of their deeds to be exposed. Speaking on this very point, John Piper comments on what Jesus says here in verse 20, and he says this. Listen to these words. Jesus is not saying here that no sins happen in public. Many people flaunt their sins in public, but they only do this where the light of Christ is so banished that they can get approval from the people that matter to them. In other words, where darkness abounds publicly, you can sin publicly without coming into the light. Does that make sense? That is so true, and this is why the world is fighting so hard today to get the light of Christian teaching turned off in our culture today. They need to banish the teaching of Christ so that their deeds will not be exposed for the evil that they are. They say they're simply wanting the freedom to live as they choose and that it's not going to affect anyone else, but that's a lie because for them to live as they want to live, they require that the rest of us turn off the lights so that they can live as they please without their conscience being aggravated. Such persons can't handle the light of truth. They're fearful and they're thin-skinned and easily upset by the truth because they're paranoid about their sin being exposed for what it really is. That's why they insist that the lights be out wherever they go and why they can become so enraged by people who reflect the light of Christ and speak his truth. Once again, Jesus' point here in verses 19 and 20 is that a person's rejection of Christ says more about that person than it does about Jesus. Your refusal to believe in Jesus and your love for the darkness reveals volumes about you. It reveals that you have something about you that you want to hide and that you want to hold on to. It reveals that you prefer to live in self-deception and to never see yourself truly under the light of Christ. You don't like Jesus because he shines the light on things about you that make you uncomfortable. Hence, your problem is not fundamentally an unbelief problem you have an affection disorder in that you love the darkness rather than the light and you love that darkness because your favored deeds are evil and you wish to persist in living in that evil. Aldous Huxley was a brilliant writer and thinker. Uh, he's the author of the book, A Brave New World, uh, he was also a wicked man, and it just so happened by coincidence that he had embraced the philosophy of meaninglessness, embracing the existential notion that the only meaning to be found in life is the meaning you choose to create. Was it a coincidence that he arrived at that philosophy? Even he would admit to you it was no coincidence at all. Listen to his rationale for why he arrived at the philosophy of life he arrived at. He says, and I quote, I had motives for not wanting the world to have meaning. Consequently, I assumed it had none. The philosopher who finds no meaning in the world is concerned to prove that there is no valid reason 
that he personally should not do as he wants to do. For myself, as no doubt for most of my contemporaries, the philosophy of meaninglessness was essentially an instrument of liberation. The liberation we desired was liberation from a certain political and economic system and liberation from a certain system of morality. We objected to the morality because it interfered with our sexual freedom, unquote. And based on what Jesus is saying in this passage that we're looking at today, the inscription over Aldous Huxley's head for all of eternity will be that the light came into the world and he loved the darkness rather than the light because his deeds were evil. At the other extreme are those who embrace the light of Christ, the Son of God. And this brings us to a fifth and final truth that we learn in this passage about God's Son, Jesus, and the judgment of God. Number five, the one who comes to the light of the Son reveals God's good judgment regarding him. The one who comes to the light of the Son reveals God's good judgment regarding him. Keep in mind that in verse 19, Jesus says, this is the judgment. In other words, this is the process by which God reveals his verdict on people's lives. And in verse 21, Jesus states the positive side of this judgment as he describes the way practicers of truth respond to Jesus. He says in verse 21, but he who practices the truth comes to the light that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. Notice whom Jesus is speaking about here. He who practices the truth. That raises the question, what does it mean to practice the truth? Well, it means that you hear the truth about Jesus and about your sin and about your need of salvation through him. And you believe that truth and you repent of your sin and you look to Jesus and believe in him as your Lord and Savior. And then you seek to walk each day in the light of his truth. To practice the truth means that you keep repenting and you keep believing in the truth of Christ and his grace whenever you fall short and you keep living your life with hope in Jesus Christ. To practice the truth, some commentators say, is essentially to believe in Jesus. For what is believing in Jesus but believing in the ultimate truth and then living accordingly? In verse 21, Jesus says that such a person who practices the truth in the way I just described is not afraid to come to the light who is Jesus. Such a person does not fear scrutiny from either God or man, he welcomes it. He's not even afraid for his sinful deeds to be shown for what they are because he hates those sins too. He's not afraid for his repentance and his love for God and his love for the truth and his obedience to God become, to become manifest for everyone to see. And such a person does not come toward the light of Christ in order to get glory for himself, but because he longs to show, as Jesus says here in verse 21, that his deeds have been wrought by God. He wants everyone to know that God is the one who's been doing miracles in my life. And I will let whatever light shine upon me so that God could get the glory for whatever it is that he's doing in me. Any good thing that such a person does has been wrought by God, and he wants the whole world to know that. Such a person is happy to, for the whole world to know God's judgment regarding him as a sinner, that God has judged him a sinner, but he also wants the world to know that God has given him atonement for his sins 
through Christ and that God is daily saving him from his sins and helping him to walk in the truth of Christ. Guys, all in all, when you sweep verses 19 through 21 together, you you end up seeing this stark contrast. The evil person shrinks from the light because he doesn't want the evil that he loves to be exposed for the evil that it is. The truth practicer comes to the light because he wants to be exposed and he wants God's work in him to be manifest. And you can tell who is who by how they respond to the light of Christ. And before we wrap up this morning, I I want us to ponder why it is that any of us would find the light of Christ even bearable. How is it possible that we who are sinners would even begin to desire the light of Christ to shine on us and expose us? Well, the answer is because in that light is not just truth and holiness, but in that light is also love and grace. Amen? We learn a part of uh, the reason why the light is bearable in John 1.14. In that verse, Jesus is talking about Christ in his first coming, and he says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. Glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of what? Grace and truth. That word glory that John uses in John 1.14 is a, is a synonym for light. And we see the connection of light and glory in passages like 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4 and 6. So just for our purposes this morning, let's paraphrase John 1.14 in this way. We beheld his light. Light of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John is telling us that the glorious light of Christ consists of both his grace and his truth. Not merely truth, but grace and truth. Think about it, guys. If the the light of Christ was only truth, it would crush us with its revelations about ourselves, would it not? But the light of Christ also consists of his grace. And it is the grace of Christ that makes the truth bearable. We come into the light of Christ and we discover that we are far more sinful than we ever knew before. And we also discover that we're far more loved than we ever dreamed possible, and we discover that God has provided for us through Christ a gracious salvation that is greater than we would have ever even asked for. And that's what makes the light not just bearable, but delicious. You ever had moments when you experienced some fresh revelation of the magnitude of some past or present sin in your life? Maybe you're reading the Bible when that happens, or perhaps you're convicted by the godly example of someone that you're looking at, or maybe someone confronts you about some sin in your life, or perhaps you're reminded of how your sin has negatively impacted someone that you love, or maybe you just wake up at three in the morning haunted by your sin. When the light of such truth comes into your heart, you feel the crushing weight of those revelations, don't you? And when such moments come, our natural instinct is to somehow turn off the lights or to run away from the light. But if you keep looking at the light, you notice that it's not just a light that's full of truth, but also full of grace and love. And if you have believed in Christ, you realize that you are loved and you are accepted by God and you are forgiven 
of your sins and you are safe in his embrace. And it is the realization of this grace that makes the light of Christ and his truth bearable. And now you can have the courage to move even more toward that light and do the repenting that is necessary. The awareness of such grace does not cause us to turn a blind eye to our sin. It's the very thing that gives us the courage we need to face our sins and to do the real work of repenting. And this is why, guys, that Christians of all people in our society should be the ones who show the greatest courage in facing our sins honestly and forthrightly and that we are the boldest of repenters. Amen? And this is also why we must be faithful to shine the light of Christ to others as deliberately and brightly as we can. This is not a time for us as a church to dim the light of Christ or to dilute his light as it exudes from us. This is no time for us as a church to fall silent and to hide the light of Christ under a bushel, even though our world desperately wants us to just, you can have the light, just put it under that basket because we don't want to see it. It's exposing too much. Let's let the light of Christ shine through us, through our words and through our deeds. And as we do that, we're going to discover the truth about people based on how they respond to that light. Some people will move toward the light of the grace and the truth of Christ, and others will be enraged by the light, and they will flee from it. But however they respond to the light will tell us where they stand in relation to the judgment of God. That's what Jesus is talking about here. And if you want to know where you personally stand in relation to God's judgment, ask yourself, how are you responding to the light of Christ? Are you coming to the light of Christ? Are you cherishing his light? Or do you repress his light and shrink away from it? If you've never come to Christ... I urge you this morning to step into the light of his grace and truth and believe in him. And if you are a Christian, walk in his light. When you're being tempted, run to the light of Christ's grace and truth. When you've succumbed to temptation, run to the light of his grace and truth. Confess your sins to God as someone who is confident in God's grace through Christ and then be a carrier of that light to others. Let me just close with one more thought that I've been thinking a lot about over the last few weeks. The string of recent mass shootings uh, in recent weeks have been awful to behold, and they are surely an indication of God's judgment upon our land And our passage today actually helps us to understand, at least in part, how we brought this judgment upon ourselves as a society. Our society has embraced a growing list of approved evils. Abortion, homosexuality, immorality, greed, certain forms of theft and deception, covetousness, drunkenness, Drugs, bitterness, hatred and unforgiveness, self-righteousness, and the list can go on. These are evils that even just a moderate exposure to the light of Christ would bring shame. But our society has dimmed the light of Christ throughout our land with the intent that the wicked nature of such evils would remain hidden. The problem is that when we dim the lights to safeguard our approved evils, we forgot to consider that the darkness that sets in ends up nourishing other evils that do not meet with our society's approval. And one day, 
we may learn that we can't have it both ways. We can't turn out the lights. We can't turn off the light of Christ in order to hide the wickedness of our preferred evils without at the same time creating conditions in which horrible other evils can flourish. Mass killings and other horrible evils are inevitable in a culture gone dark. And the real marvel is that such things don't happen more often. We can legislate all we want. We can hire guards for every school, for every market, and every subway station. Such steps may actually end up being necessary to help our society operate more safely in the dark. But what's really needed is for each of us to move toward the light of Jesus Christ and to let the light of Christ have its way with us, repenting of our sins and then clinging boldly to Jesus and living in and practicing the truth of Christ. What is really needed is for us to let the light of Christ shine brightly in our churches and shine brightly in and from our homes and to shine through us in the public square and for us as Christians to show the world what life and the light can be like. And if we do that, some are going to be drawn to the light while others will shrink from the light and they'll hate the light and they will hate us. That's what happened to Jesus. But this is God's plan. And this is how God reveals his judgments in the lives of people. Let's trust him with those judgments and ask him to help us to be faithful to do our part that he has called us to do. Let's go to him in prayer. Lord, this is a heavy passage. Um, and we look at a text like this and we think of those that do not know you and our hearts are so burdened for them. We pray, Lord, for their salvation. I'm also personally, Lord, convicted of my own life. Just how do I walk in the light? What do I do with the light each day and each week? Do I move toward the light? Or there are times where I try to repress the light because it makes me uncomfortable with something that I don't really want to let go of. Judgment must first start in the household of God. And Lord, I just pray that your spirit would sweep through this congregation and other churches, Lord, and that there would just be a season of um, repentance, but also just a, a renewal of appreciation of the grace, the love, and the hope of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and that we would walk in the light as you have saved us to do and that your light, Lord, would shine in us and from us to those around us and that you would use that light to reveal and, and save those who need saving. As we said at the outset, Lord, this is our time. These are the days you've raised us up for. You could have had all of us be born a thousand years ago, living in a different time. You, you created us. You brought us into this world. You saved us for a time such as this. Help us as a church 
to shine the light of Christ as you have called us to. And as we continue to work through John's gospel, help us. Help us to see what we need to see to know how to do this as you have called us to. We commit ourselves to you, Lord, with these requests in our hearts in the name of Jesus. And all God's people said,